1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie.
0: So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
1: Some families were born into. Some families are made from the ones we meet along the way. Our families are built on love and traditions, the memories we share, and knowing that life is better because we're together. Pure Life. 100% pure quality water, refreshing every moment together. Visit purelifewater.com and discover where to buy Pure Life. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Imagine being tasked with a key role in crucial negotiations, a role that could alter the course of global international relations. But on top of that, you're the only person in the room who can communicate between the two opposing sides both of which know hardly anything about the other's language, culture or motivations. Henrietta Harrison's book The Perils of Interpreting looks at two interpreters who found themselves in that exact position when they were working on negotiations between the British Empire and China in the late 18th and 19th centuries. The book's recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize, and we've teamed up with them to bring you conversations with all of the nominated authors. So I spoke to Henrietta to find out more. In your new book, The Perils of Interpreting, you follow two interpreters who were at the heart of a pivotal moment in diplomatic relations between China on the one hand and the British Empire on the other at the end of the 18th century. So can you start us off by
2: introducing us to this story and its central players. So the two people who um, are the interpreters are taking part in this big diplomatic embassy. And that embassy is being led by Lord McCartney, um, and he's, he's the, the big English ambassador. And the embassy is going to the Qianlong Emperor. Qianlong Emperor is... Um, in his 80s. He's ruled China for nearly 50 years. He's incredibly powerful, really magnificent emperor. And this is the first time that Britain and China have that formal contact between between the court's formal diplomatic contact. So before we talk uh, in more detail about these
0: two interpreters, who are both fascinating figures, let's give our listeners a little bit of context here. So what was happening? In China and in Britain at this time?
2: So, this is the period that the Chinese call one of their great periods of history. The Qing Empire had conquered China. They were not Chinese people. They're Manchus. They came down from the north from the Central Asian steppes. They conquered China in the 17th century. And then their empire continues to expand outwards. It's a very glorious and um, magnificent period. However, it's also got the seeds of decline, as is so often the case. (laughs) There are actually underlying financial problems. But at this stage, they're still not visible to anyone except for the people actually running the state's finances. So that's on the one side. On the other side, we have the British. And obviously, we've had the Age of Exploration. And this is the period of British expansion in India. And one of the things I really wanted to say with my book is that that's important to how Britain and China relate. People have tended to see these two as entirely separate. And indeed, the the Chinese were very poorly informed on what was going on in India. They hardly knew Um, the Chinese state about what was happening. But so one of the things I'm really interested in is why did they not know what they didn't know about India? So what were some of the key issues
0: on the table in these negotiations? Was it trade? Was it war, religion, cultural exchange?
2: So the British wanted to expand trade with China So Britain is importing huge amounts of tea, vast quantities of tea from China, and they want to have exports to China. And the particular thing they want to export is British woolens. But in order to expand their exports, they want to reduce taxes. And the method of this they would like is for them to have an island off the coast of China and to have a resident at the court, an ambassador at the Qing court who could influence Events And that, of course, is very much a, a similar approach to how they approached India. But it's usually been thought of really differently as Britain trying to set up diplomatic relations with a country that hitherto did not have diplomatic relations with the West. So I'm intrigued as to the approach of your book, because
0: rather than focusing on the diplomats who were involved in this exchange, you've decided
2: to focus on the interpreters. Why did you do that? I originally came across this book because I was in the Vatican in the archives of the Propaganda Fide, which is the Congregation for the Evangelization of the Peoples. It's, it's where the Vatican keeps its world archives. And I was reading for another book and I found the, uh, about all the Chinese Catholic priests who'd worked in Shanxi province, that's my main area of research, North China, over 200 years. And I found this amazing set of letters from this Catholic priest who'd been Chinese Catholic priest, Li zibiao or Jacobus Lee, who'd been the interpreter for this embassy, describing not only what it was like, but also explaining that he'd added an item of his own to the negotiations as the interpreter, and that was really rather remarkable. He put to the Chinese a request for toleration of Catholics, which was not something obviously that the 18th century British state was necessarily going to have supported. And I think that's really at the heart of your book, isn't it? It's,
0: it's this role of interpreter, which is beyond just taking one message and relaying it to somebody else. It's so much more complex than that. So what can you tell us about what it was like to be an interpreter at this time when so few people could communicate between two cultures?
2: Yes. And so this is really about not like interpreting in Europe where there'd have been multiple people, but about interpreting in Asia, where you might have a situation where you were the only person present who actually understood exactly what was, what was going on. And I think we underestimate the fact that interpreters always have power. I teach in a Chinese department. And if you do that, you understand that when you speak something in one language, there's not an exact equivalent. You're always making changes. And of course, if you're an interpreter, um, you're doing that on the fly. And this is before recording equipment. These people are just listening to something somebody says and then explaining it. I wonder if you could give us some examples, because you have some in your book,
0: of how in the, the context of China and Britain, these,
2: these messages could be warped, if that's the right way of putting it. Well, I'm not, yes. So quite often people have thought about it in terms of mistakes, but I think that's probably not, not quite right. I think the more I think about it the, and the more you understand it, you see that basically you always, you've always got to make choices, so for example the chinese had a word for foreigners and this is the word e and this term e is a term which has been translated subsequently as barbarian and when the british found they were being described as barbarian they were furious however that word e is used up in North China for the Mongols, who are very much, the Mongols are part of the Qing empire, They're one of its major peoples there. Their culture is respected, it's widely used. And I think to translate this word "e" as barbarian is to try and fit a, a, Roman, a, a set of ideas from the Roman empire onto China that just don't quite fit. And there's a similar issue with tribute. So the Chinese term Gong, um, which means a gift that is given to someone, usually someone above you. And that got, tr- got translated into English um, at the time of the Opium Wars as tribute. And the British said they were refused to pay tribute to the um, Chinese emperor. However, that word does also just mean a gift. And although it has a slight directional tone to it, that it's generally a gift upwards, uh, it's not always a gift upwards. It can sometimes be a presentation by someone downwards. So it's really very, um, complex how you choose to t- translate this. It's, you're always going to make choices. You can't not make choices. And when Li Zabiao translated, because he was Chinese and he was what he wanted was a good outcome for the negotiations, he used those relatively positive. So he was translating actually into Latin or Italian. And he used, for example, he for E, for, for foreigner he, or, or barbarian, he used the Latin word externi, which means sort of outsider. He uses quite neutral terms that everybody will be able to accept. Whereas later on, as the British Empire becomes very active in China and people become quite aggressive, they don't want to use those terms. They use these very strong terms, which are very angering. To, if they want to, to, to motivate the British to engage in warfare, they will use these much stronger terms to translate.
0: So these nuances of language are so important, aren't
2: they? These are just crucial. So, you know, the McCartney embassy has always been regarded as a disaster because the British didn't get their island. But that's a bit unfair because the Chinese didn't want to give an island of their territory. You know, you could have regarded it as a quite successful, and Leeds of Biao did regard it as quite successful because by the time everybody left, everybody was, um, it, it went off quite well. The embassy was quite satisfactory. The British had decided they would come back and they thought they would get more than they got the previous time. And it looked like, that to him, like the start of diplomatic relations.
0: So, so let's talk now in more detail about the two men at the heart of this story. What can you tell us about who Lee and um, another interpreter, who we haven't mentioned yet I don't think, called Staunton, who they were and how they
2: became interpreters? Okay so they're amazing people. I'll start with Lee because he's the older one. So Li Zibiao was born in the far northwest Ch- of China up on the Silk Road, so really quite a remote place but his grandparents probably, had converted to the Catholic Church. So there had been Jesuit missionaries very famously going out from Europe in the 17th century and went to China and worked for the emperors, first of the Ming dynasty and then of the new Qing dynasty. And they were out there and people converted to Catholicism and Li Zibiao's family were part of that. So when he was 12, a Chinese priest came to visit their town and he said, why don't you send your son? to study to be a priest. And he sent this little 11-year-old off to Naples to where he studied at a special college that the Catholic Church had set up to train Chinese to be Catholic priests and to be missionaries to go back to China. And he spent the next 20 years of his life there. And it was a very, very classy education. It also ran as a kind of posh boarding school for local Neapolitan aristocrats. So Lee's best friend was someone called the Duke of Valimetzana, or at least he was about to be the Duke, Giovanni Maria Borgia, he was going to be the Duke of Valimetzana. And they were really very close. And actually Lee was still writing to him 20 years after his return to China saying, I'll oh, remember how entwined our souls were in youth. So I originally started this project because I found Li Zabiao's correspondence and I just thought it was amazing to be hearing about a Chinese priest who was traveling around Europe and writing letters about what it was like. This was just amazing. So I really wanted to write a book about him. And then every time I talked about this embassy, the Lord McCartney's embassy, people said, oh, but wasn't there a little boy, an English little boy? And I thought, well, I must actually look at the English little boy too, because there was. So Lord McCartney's secretary was a man called George Leonard Staunton, who came from an Irish Catholic background. And he was a huge enthusiast for the Enlightenment too. And he was bringing his child up as a kind of 18th century project, poor child. So he was going to be a kind of genius in botany and languages. So he had to be able to recognize lots and lots of different kinds of mosses. But he also was made to speak Latin from age five. So if ever he wanted anything, he had, his father made him say Si tibi plaquet, please, in Latin. And so his father thought that his child was going to be the first to really learn British person to really learn Chinese. So he had a deep belief in teaching languages by total immersion, which was quite unusual. And he took this little boy on the embassy, and he also made so there were actually four Chinese priests who went on this embassy, Li Zbiao and three others. And and the embassy found them in Naples and then took them back to China. George Leonard Staunton, the father of the little boy, made sure that they also taught his son Chinese. So his son had lessons, three hours a day, Chinese lessons, all the way around the world on the boat, which was uh, a year of travel. And actually, when you're 11, if you have three hours a day of lessons in a language you can get quite good at it and various of the adults tried but they couldn't do it when they got to china it turned out no one could understand them but this little boy was really good at languages he he'd been brought up to study very hard all his life and he plugged away and he t- when he got to china it turned out people could understand him and so he then was also there but of course when you're 11 or well, he was between 11 and 12 on this This occasion, you're not really going to be a major diplomatic interpreter. So, in fact, what happens is Li Zibiao is the does the diplomatic interpreting for the embassy, and then George Thomas Staunton goes on. I mean, he's present at the meeting with the Chenlong Emperor and it's the kind of big event of his life. But he then goes on to work for the British East India Company um, in Canton. He becomes their interpreter and he ends up making a fortune and becoming an MP. The, the status
0: of these interpreters is really interesting because something you discuss in the book is how if you were immersed in two cultures, how you were never entirely
2: trusted by both. Can you speak a little bit about that? Yes, so this is something that people in translation studies talk a lot about, that the the translator is a traitor. In order to to really know a language well enough to interpret, you have to be very deeply immersed and you have to have friends. And this same thing. So I I spoke a little about about, um, Lidzebjar and Giovanni Maria Borgia. But when George Thomas Staunton arrives in China with the East India Company, he too ends up making friends with local Chinese people. And that's partly because he's been pushed on the East India Company. You really didn't want it. This is a prime job for the directors of the East India Company. They give it to their most incompetent sons because when you've got this job as what they call a writer in the the Canton factory, so in South China, you're going to make money. You get a cut on the trade. And if you stay there, you will become rich. And then they get this little boy who's been pushed on them on the grounds that he knows Chinese. And they're like, well, we don't need anyone who knows Chinese. We have a perfectly good system where the Chinese merchants speak pidgin English, and we're absolutely fine with that. Well, the last thing we need is some English boy who knows Chinese but and taking this money from our family members. And he also, he'd had this really weird upbringing where he, his, his father his father was really influenced by Rousseau and never let him speak to another child his own age on under the age of 16 without an adult present. That he didn't want any bad influences on his child. So of course he was, he'd never been to school. He had this very bizarre education. So he was really bad with people. Um, and when he got to China, not only was he really bad with people, poor child, but by this stage he's 17, but he's also, everybody really resents him turning up. So what he actually ends up doing is having friends who are among the young Chinese men working in the factory. And he gives, you know, he tries to become better and better at speaking and translating Chinese and they help him and he learns from them and he becomes very, very close to them. And those kinds of relationships make people problematic from either side. But you need those kinds of relationships to have this quality of language ability. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. Quite often the problem was that the, the central state decision-making body wasn't necessarily as well as informed as it could have been. And one of the reasons for this is that is the fear um, of those people who are in between.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate? you need indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches.
0: But there's only one Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about
1: this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
0: What were some of the the key moments in the careers of Staunton and Lee? Moments where perhaps we can unpick their influence or see that they, they had a significant impact?
2: Well, so obviously the, 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 with Lee, the, the, that key moment is, is the McCartney embassy where, where we can see him smoothing things over with the elegant translations and with a very positive line and uh, he was very, always very good with people and keeping everybody on side, and he applied that to the embassy. And what the Chinese was concerned about was that the British might start bombarding, the they'd come in this big warship and other well-armed ships, and they were anxious that the British might actually launch a and launch an attack. And that didn't happen. I mean, of course, the British said that they weren't going to do that. But equally, as they sailed around the world, they assessed all ports for the possibilities of bombarding them. <laughs> if we talk about Staunton, the, the big moments, he has an impact are probably in the, after he's gone back to China in the early 19th century. He's, he's in China from 1799 through to 1817. And in that period, he's learnt interpreting in this same way, all about the spoken language, and he uses this very smooth style, which um, makes everything acceptable. So when when you read um, Staunton's translations of Chinese officials, they just sound exactly like 18th century English gentlemen. They're all in that kind of world of writing. And the other person who turns up with Staunton about that time in China is someone called Robert Morrison. And he's the first British missionary to China. And he's wanting to translate the Bible. And in order to do that, he he wants to start off with a dictionary. And he comes from working class background in Newcastle. His father had been a boot blast maker. He's worked in um, his father's workshop. And then he becomes inspired to go and be a missionary. And he goes off on this thing with basically no money. And Staunton is, is his big patron when he gets there, because they're the only two people who are interested. But Morrison, because he wants to translate the Bible, he thinks each word. He thinks with the Bible, you've got to say exactly what's in it. You can't go smoothing it out into something that's acceptable. So he's really obsessed with getting each word absolutely correct. And so he produces translations, which make the Chinese sound really strange. Because Chinese, if you translate it into English, does sound odd. It's a different kind of language. And it makes the whole thing sound totally alien, because you have to use lots and lots of different words. A very good example is that up till this time the, the Chinese way of talking about the English king was usually to say that country's king? And George Thomas Staunton always translated this: His Majesty King George the When Robert Morrison turns up, he does. They go over. They do go over to that country's king. And of course, that country's king sounds really different. But for the Chinese, it wasn't necessarily disrespectful. And obviously, the Chinese letters that Staunton is translating when he translates it, His Majesty King George, he's trying to get across what the Qing officials and what, what matters to him is what their intent was. What kind of people are they? Are they intending to be aggressive or are they intending to, to, to be placatory um, and to give the British what they want? And he's trying to get that across, whereas Morrison is trying to get across each word. And it doesn't matter if the overall effect is that this is a very strange person being rude to the English. King. That's
0: so interesting, isn't it? In, in the case of Staunton and Lee, what were some of the key cultural differences when approaching negotiations that they had to kind of move
2: between? Well, I suppose the big, the big event of this is, the, is the, what this embassy is most famous for, which is the issue of the kowtow. Kowtow was Chinese, means to get down on your knees and bow your head to the floor. And if you did this, and this is a kind of quite normal greeting between people in China, if you would definitely do it for your parents, but actually friends might get down on their knees to each other. Obviously, it was certainly not something people did in Europe. You know, this is the age of the Dutch and shaking hands and a very different kind of etiquette. The Chinese were famous for requiring ambassadors to do this. So when you met the Chinese emperor, you were supposed to, you you got down on your knees and you bowed your head to the ground nine times. So you you did three times down, then you kneeled up, and then you get another three times, and then you kneel up, and then you do another three times. It's a very major ceremony. Historians have said for many years, and, and this started straight after the embassy, that Lord McCartney didn't get an island, didn't get what the British wanted because he refused to do this to the Chinese. And actually, this was a big issue before the embassy ever went off. The British knew that, 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 and there were cartoons, Gilray did cartoons of McCartney on his knees in front of the Chinese embassy before the embassy ever set off. So they we were all really worked up about this. And the Chinese reports always said that, the, that McCartney did do it. And for many years, the the historian's line was English sources are bound to be accurate and English people didn't tell lies. Therefore, McCartney correctly said that he didn't kowtow. Therefore, the the Chinese are inclined to lie. So we don't believe their sources. But that's a ridiculous attitude because diplomats do lie. It's part of the, the whole game of diplomatic negotiation. And one of the things I realized when I was doing this research was the, the the Chinese emperor didn't actually see these people in Beijing. They, he saw them at his summer palace, and of course, he's not Chinese. He's a Manchu from these steppe peoples. And when he's at his summer palace, which is up in the mountains where he goes hunting in the summer to keep get away from the heat of Beijing, he can use different kinds of etiquette. And in fact, the Manchus have an etiquette where they go down on one knee and bow and put a hand on the ground, and that of course is much closer to what the the British did. So Lord McCartney only took very close relatives to the actual moment where he might be seen to do this. And his nephew was there. And his nephew has a letter that McCartney's asked him to lie about something and he feels uncomfortable about it. So that suggests that McCartney actually did something that he didn't want people back in Britain to know about. And if you look at George Thomas Staunton's diary, and he's an 11-year-old, he wrote we knelt down and performed the ceremony and then he crossed it out. So it looks like in his diary, his father was telling him how to describe what they'd done. So those have been very big issues and they had to be negotiated. Liedzebia, obviously, when he was there, they managed a kind of compromise situation. But when the next British Embassy comes back in 1816 and George Thomas is interpreting, he's in a really different situation because George Thomas, his friends, have been getting into trouble. So the British are sending naval ships to the south coast of China to attack freight shipping. This is it during the Napoleonic Wars. And the, the, the ships coming out with tea from the port of Canton or Guangzhou are very, very valuable prizes. So all these merchant British naval ships are skulking off the coast trying to attack French ships. And obviously the Chinese state does not like this. I mean, they wouldn't like it now and they didn't like it then. And one of the things that they try to do is to control the people who are dealing too closely they feel with the British. And George Thomas Staunton's friends, who are also people who are in that intermediary interpreter role, they get into really big trouble. And one of his friends is put in a kind of stop a kind of Chinese version of the stocks, outside the the factories. So that's the building where the, the British have their offices for a prolonged period. And then he gets sent into exile in Xinjiang, up in China's far west, you know, really terrifying outcome. And then another friend of Staunton's gets imprisoned and sent into exile. So a young man, very much the same age as him, who's one of his really close friends. And we've got all the young, that young Chinese man's letters from prison still survive in the Foreign Office Archive. Just amazing, telling Staunton what to say, how to negotiate his case. But the Chinese emperor, by this time we're on, the Jiaqing emperor, the son of Qianlong, he becomes aware that Staunton's involved. And he actually sends out an edict, so a proper imperial statement condemning Staunton and saying that if he puts a foot wrong, he should be sent into exile. He should not be sent back to his own country. And it happens just before that next embassy to China, and Staunton goes on it. And the ambassador at that stage is Lord Amherst, and Amherst doesn't know about this. They don't. Staunton doesn't tell him. But all the Qing officials they meet are trying to use this fact, To bully Staunton into making sure that Amherst does kowtow and perform these rituals. They they basically, it becomes a very huge issue. And Staunton feels that if he were to kowtow or to promote that kowtow, it would look look like he was a total coward. Um, And eventually he has to tell Amherst both that McCartney actually. Did this manoeuvre, or at least that, what he says is McCartney went down on one knee and bowed his head to the ground nine times. But actually, I mean, there's very little you can tell if you're wearing long robes between down on one knee and down on two knees once you're bowing your head to the ground nine times. And Lord Amherst thinks that's just basically the same thing. And he thinks he's willing to do it. He thinks, who cares what the Chinese is? This is? ridiculous. Um, uncivilised peoples with uncivilised trade by this stage, their attitude, the British attitude towards the Chinese declines massively in this period when they take control of India and they start thinking of Asians and Asiatics in very strongly negative light. Whereas in the in the late 18th century, they're still seeing them very much in the eyes of the Jesuits who'd been there as missionaries who promoted China as a kind of model for Europe with this wonderful benevolent monarchy and ruled by philosopher kings and there's this whole sort of positive attitude and that really collapses around the turn of the 19th century as you go into the 19th century. So Amherst doesn't care. He's prepared to kowtow. Who cares? But Staunton says, absolutely, no, that would be awful. We really mustn't do that. And that embassy collapses. They they get taken to the court where the British say they're looked at, treated like animals in a zoo. Everyone comes and looks at them and kind of pokes them and they're not treated respectfully at all. And at that point, Amherst refuses to meet the emperor because he feels disrespected. They get sent immediately back to the coast.
0: And what can you tell us about the afterlife, as it were, of Lee? Because he also
2: got into hot water, didn't he? So after the embassy, Lee goes off to be a missionary in Shanxi province um, in a rural area, but mostly he lives in a quite comfortable life. He's when you say he's a missionary, he's basically a priest of a huge area. The area he was priest of is about the size of Norway, (laughs) (laughs) with about 300 small congregations. And he was the only clergy person there, so it puts some British clergy who complain about large parishes (laughs) in perspective. But as the Jiaqing Emperor becomes more hostile, To the Europeans and also because there have been religious rebellions in China set off by Buddhist sectarian groups. The Chinese state becomes very concerned on cracking down on religious groups. They feel that they're a danger and that includes Catholics who to them look just basically like the Buddhist sectarians. They don't distinguish very firmly. And so Lee is living in this world and he ends up having to go into hiding. So he's got this amazing education, but he actually ends up living his life, the end of his life, in hiding in this tiny, tiny little village. And that village remains as an entirely... Catholic village, but it's way up in the mountains and the Chinese had all this amazing knowledge. And he was very loyal to the Chinese government. He was actually very moved by his relationship with the Qianlong Emperor. He he never criticizes the Chinese government in his letters. Even when they're persecuting Christians and sending his flock into exile in Xinjiang, he never criticizes them. But they're wasting all this knowledge. So there's all this knowledge about the West, because China at that point is fantastically ill informed. You know, at the point of when they're about to go to war with Britain, they're actually writing, you know, the British won't be good at fighting on land because their knees don't bend properly. You know, and, and that's just an insane sort of mistake to be making after 200 years of having the British present. You know, you must have known that their knees bend. But the, the formal state apparatus is really poorly informed. And part, one of the things I want to show people in this book is how part of the reason for that is that the people who know this stuff, people like Leeds of Biar, people like George Thomas Staunton and his friends, his Chinese friends, really aren't, don't dare to speak out. Finally, what do you think that looking
0: at these two interpreters can tell us about the changing relationship between China
2: and Britain over this period that you look at? So for a long time, we had an idea that China was isolated from the West and didn't know about it because Chinese people despised Westerners and their learning, and that the Opium War was the result of China's refusal to engage in diplomacy with the West after the McCartney embassy. However, I think when we look at the interpreters, we see that there's actually much more contact than we realized. One of the most fun people I discovered this, in this project was a chap called John Ho Chi. And John Ho Chi was originally a Chinese guy called He Zhi, who uh, had to flee from China in the 1810s. And he settled in Sussex where he became a gentleman farmer. Married an English woman, Charlotte Mole, um, sent his son to Edinburgh University to study medicine. His daughters mostly married doctors And there were some Ho Chi arms houses still exist in Sussex, donated by his wife after she was called Charlotte Mole after his death. And I think that whole world of interconnections has been much downplayed. And I think one of the things we need to think about as China's relations is that China wasn't totally isolated. But quite often the problem was that the, the central state decision making body, wasn't necessarily as well as informed as it could have been. And one of the reasons for this is, that, is the fear um, of those people who are in between.
0: That was Henrietta Harrison. Her book, The Perils of Interpreting, is published by Princeton and has recently been shortlisted for the Kundal History Prize. We'll be speaking to all of the shortlisted authors in the next few weeks, so you can look forward to finding those episodes in your podcast feeds. And you can find out more about the Kundal History Prize at kundalprize.com. That's C-U-N-D-I-L-L. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman.